Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in Room with Scotch. I'm your host, Michael Lilienthal, and this is my guest, Ethan Bartlett. Or are we? And we're going to talk about books, but not about scotch. Or are we? Okay. That's uh, my, my segue into the book that we're going to be talking about, but I'm not going to introduce the book yet. Okay, um, we might have to have a talk about what a segue is. Is a segue uh, one of those little wheelie bobber things that you ride around on and sometimes it throws people off cliffs? Yeah, yeah, it is. So I don't know. I actually don't know why you're so bad at it if you know exactly what it is. But shoot, uh, yeah, it's it's my life. I know things. I just can't perform them. Mm, that has not at least proven to be my experience of your life. What what has your experience of my life been? Uh, it's actually involved a lot of per- you performing things. <laughs> Okay. Sometimes me performing them for you, but this is a family podcast, so we're not going to get into that. Uh, (laughs) Hey-o! Yeah, and on this family podcast, we're drinking scotch. Uh, (laughs) We're drinking uh, Talisker Storm Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. Yes. Uh, This is the second set of podcast episodes in which we are drinking this one. Uh, So... um, We've had two episodes that are Scotch-centric so far on this, and so we have two more. And at the end of that, if nobody breaks uh, the rules, oh, then shoot. we have both lost. So that's that's coming. Listen, um, I just figured out what book I'm bringing next minutes before this recording session. So <laughs> if you think I'm not figuring out a punishment for you on the fly, uh, you got another <laughs> thing coming. Well, you might not get that chance. Yes, yeah, well, lose. Okay, well, uh, I I mean, I see that gauntlet you've thrown down on the floor. Um, right. I'm sort of ignoring it's right. it. It's right there. Uh, Look at it. We we fought one duel one time on this podcast, and it's true we did. Involved having to resurrect you through the only black magic ritual that we've, <laughs> that we've committed to the airwaves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh. <laughs> My wife yeah. was on that episode. Yeah, she was. She was. I think she kind of took took point on the ritual, if I if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sounds uh, about right. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I was all ready to uh, run off with her, honestly, and then I was like, "Oh wait, I do have a wife already." And there's there's that. That complicates things. It does. You know? It does. Pre existing wives. Um, <laughs> they then. So. <laughs> I mean, they have their own opinions about whether they want you to to. Uh, run off with other people it's a whole it's a whole deal it's a thing it's a thing yeah Yeah. uh speaking of let's get your wife in here (laughs) to read the rules (laughs) of all the segues you could have gone with (laughs) i mean i I should be grateful you could have gotten me in a lot more trouble oh hi karen uh we were just talking about (laughs) stuff (laughs) nice here's a thank you thank you uh here's here's a script Dear, would you read the rules, please? Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. 
Rule four, Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five, if anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six, the wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven, if four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Thank you, dear. Excellent. Now, uh, I mean, I'm not telling you to go away, but I'm just saying don't ask any more questions about what you heard before. Or any questions, because you didn't ask any questions. You just read the rules. You don't. You don't want to say anything. You don't have any. Any response? I'm being like real weird, and you don't have any response. Okay. Well, she's gone. Yeah, but we could all feel the look she was giving you. So. <laughs> yeah, it was the same look she would give me if she was actually here and heard that. I mean, if uh, she gives me when I say other weird stuff, it's just this like, I could I could investigate this, but frankly, I don't have the energy. <laughs> but it's not that she doesn't have the energy it's like she doesn't feel the energy is worth spending in this manner which is <laughs> fair really yeah yeah it's a it's a very cat-like response <laughs> she actually has this theory that like uh there are people who are who are cats and people who are dogs and mm-hmm. whatever thing you are is like the opposite of like w- what pet you actually tend to prefer Ah. and she just adores dogs and mm. it occurs to me she is very cat-like so i guess that that works well, out there and, you go theory proven yeah i was gonna say that's the one example you need to prove any theory exactly <laughs> which is why anytime you're arguing on the internet about like some sort of vast social phenomenon and you like make mm-hmm. a statement about like most people in this category xyz and then you have one single person who comes on the comment thread and is like, well, I'm in that category, and that hasn't been my experience. Like, your whole argument is defeated. It's true. It's true. Then you might as well just quit the internet in shame. I mean, we we all really should probably quit the internet, not necessarily in shame, but <laughs> poor no, things. in shame. <laughs> also in shame, yes. <laughs> we should really just delete all of our, you know, uh social media apps and web browsing apps and any apps that allow you to do anything other than listen to the show and keep the show around well yeah i mean obviously you obviously keep your podcasting app like overall of course of course but make that the sole purpose of the internet exactly yeah oh my gosh (laughs) i feel like i do and also don't want to write that science fiction novel (laughs) <laughs> all discourse all online discourse is just podcasts now just podcasts yep there's like a lot of references you could do to like 18th century you know pamphlet wars and stuff Ooh, yes mm-hmm. yeah it wouldn't be good but it it would be entertaining well it it couldn't be about that right 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 that would just have to be the 
the shtick. No, I'm just saying the concept wouldn't be good. Like, there's no way this oh. is a good, like, yeah, yeah. a good concept. It's just, it potentially could be very entertaining, though. Sure, sure. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, what is this uh, podcast about? Scott. Yes. And then once our glasses clink, the rules that your wife read minutes ago go into effect. Watch me just uh, delete that entire non sequitur that I just did, and so that you say minutes ago, you sound like an idiot. That's <laughs> that's you know the true power that an editor wields. <laughs> you can make anyone you want to sound like a complete idiot. Exactly, uh, but it requires effort. See, that's what. Yeah, that, I was gonna say that if you did that, like this is now setting up my desire to make you sound like an idiot against my laziness at doing any <laughs> editing on this podcast. I'm like. I honestly and, and don't know what who will keeps, win. What, what keeps me coming back to the podcast is the side that I gamble on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well. With that, Lachayim. Schlank. Uh, you got that nice ringing tone, but I don't feel like redoing my... See, and this is where you know exactly which wins between laziness and the other thing is... Uh, I literally just don't feel like re-clanking my glass. That's, yeah, see? The theory proven. Yeah, exactly. Again, <laughs> one one example. One example. All it takes to prove a theory. That's yep. how science works. Speaking of science, this is the book uh -oh. we're reading. Oh. That was a really good segue. And now you pointed it out, so it's a bad segue. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I'm an agent of chaos. What can I which say? once once you once you acknowledge a thing, its whole reality collapses and uh, it ceases to exist. Oh man, that was Speaking a good of, segue. Speaking of, we're again. reading Ball Lightning by Cixin Liu. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh... that was, Are like, you proud of me. I am. I am actually very proud of you. Like. <laughs> Sort of a, like, student has become the master sort of pride. <laughs> like, I've finally taught you to be a uh, forceful personality. A forceful personality. Well, I edited out okay. the first three words that I thought of just to keep this a family podcast, which we are Got always it. successful at doing. It's true. Yes, we are. Um anyway ignoring that and going on to the book that we're discussing wait are we discussing uh, okay sorry Go on. Yes. <laughs> it's the book uh ball lightning by Tishin liu uh, famous uh, he, uh this author is famous for writing the three body problem uh in that uh associated trilogy um ball lightning is another uh science fiction book by him uh, he's a chinese author uh, this book was written originally in 2005 uh, and translated into English in 2018, um, which is uh, just a, an interesting spread of time. And I did catch myself reading through this. I don't think I don't know if I, I caught anything necessarily on the world stage that, you know, affected what this book was like in 2005. But right. I was thinking about that. Uh, as I was reading that like yeah. it seems new but it's also from 2005 so <laughs> yeah um and you know my my uh intimidation and quite frankly like probably the reason I haven't read any of Liu's books before mm -hmm. is like 
I'm gonna I'm gonna like be very vulnerable for a minute here and admit that I know very little about China. Um, you know, like contemporary China, like what the world looks like from their perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know I I read things and I make an effort, but like I just Chinese both history and current sort of current affairs are like one of my the weak points in my knowledge and education and like when i read a book that's so far outside of my worldview like that i'm i'm constantly aware of like uh, there's probably a set of reference here that uh uh are just going flying straight past me um and it's stupid but that phenomenon like keeps me from reading you know books that are that far out of my comfort zone which of course becomes like a self-fulfilling thing right because you never you never start reading Mm -hmm. you know reading those books and then they never become your comfort zone but uh yeah i i suspect that i all of that said i suspect that uh if you were a chinese person in 2005 there would be at least some set of some reference points that are like like it feels very contemporary so i have to imagine that you know they're sort of sideways glances at certain things that as Americans, you know, we just miss completely. Yeah. Well, that's, that's something that, you know, reading through this, um, I was wondering how much I was missing. Yeah. Um, as far as the culture, the, the political spectrum (laughs) that, uh, was in play at the time of writing or still is in play in China. However, right. it is. But um, yeah, I, that said, I don't think this story was necessarily impacted by that lack of perspective on, on my part. I, I mean, I certainly enjoyed it as a story and certainly sure. didn't feel like I was, you know, as far as the experience of, of get, having a story told to me, uh, you know, I didn't feel like I was, missing any, like I, I didn't feel left out of anything or like i was missing anything uh mm-hmm. like there was cer- certainly a completeness to it that uh based i guess based on what i do what little i do know about china and just you know probably some i i have to assume you know the translator was you know knew what they were doing i don't i don't remember what the translator's name is but um oh what's his name yeah uh, Joel Martinson. Okay, so, yeah, I, like I, anyway, you know, I, I just assume that like when when you're reading anything in translation, you do have to keep that in mind. Like this is repackaged. This is sort of probably packaged in a way that is designed to render it comfortable to us, since this is you know a contemporary yeah. American publisher. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I don't like. I don't want to belabor this comparison too much, but like, you have to assume that Tobias Smollett's translation of Don Quixote in 1655 mm-hmm. had had certain things that the English reading public would be would you know cue to, um, you know. So, uh, yeah, I, I assume that that Joel Martin's translation was much more accurate than uh, Smollett <laughs> was because Smollett is famously sort of like. It's Don Quixote, but it's a little bit Tobias Smollett also. Um, right. <laughs> so there's there is that. Um, the one thing right. that that might be relevant here that I 
you know do have direct experience with as far as like mm. Chinese literature and culture goes um when I was at Bethany Lutheran College the institution where we you might be familiar with Michael where we both got our undergrad degrees I've heard of it yeah it comes up every once in a while um <laughs> I was in retrospect a very bad employee at the uh writing center which was just a mm. it was like a work study job and the writing center was just where um baby children who were slightly better at English than the other baby children who were also at the college um <laughs> could get employed uh to like i mean mostly you sat in an empty room for an hour but the theory was that uh, that other people could come in and have you help them with their you know their whatever writing based assignments that they had mm -hmm. um and one of the most interesting experiences i had doing that uh was i had two um young women who were exchange students from China come in and ask for my help. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, they were, I mean, frankly, they spoke and wrote far better English than I do of any dialect of, of Chinese. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they were, they were, you know, wanted help from a, a native speaker, just, just another pair mm -hmm. of eyes kind of thing. And they had what must have been, uh, so it's for like a you know a composition type assignment right um mm -hmm. but they had what must have been just something they had printed off the internet i think or maybe something that you know they uh took from like uh, from whatever schools they had attended in china um it was a it was a like a rubric like the kind of thing that you use to teach college english right where it's like mm -hmm. uh whatever theme is is this and uh i don't know grammar is this and and you know just analyzing the different aspects both like content-based and technical of a of a literary paper right um mm -hmm. and you know they just it, it was in english but it was written like for chinese students so i i honestly mm -hmm. don't know the origins of that but you know so i went through these probably five or six categories with them uh, yeah i was kind of grateful for you know the the help of a um just you know some some like basis to to look at their paper uh and you know i, I did my best to help them and like as i recall even their grammar and punctuation and stuff were like pretty good like hmm. i moved some commas around maybe but like nothing i i wouldn't expect to do with with you know someone who had grown up in yeah. in minnesota till the age of 18 or 19 or however mm -hmm. old um okay so we we, we worked through all of these categories and the last category i don't remember how it was worded but paraphrasing my memory it was something like like government appropriateness or like appropriateness oh. to the to the government or to the state or something and I was like, I read through it and I looked at them and I was like, I don't, I was basically just like, I don't know what this is. Um, <laughs> and uh, they kind of looked at each other. And it was one of those things where they were like, how does he not know what this is? Like, this is basic stuff. Um, and finally, yeah. one of the two of them said, oh, I think you maybe don't have this category in the United States, but it was basically like, 
whether your paper or the thing you've written sort of lines up with uh, the, you know, ideals of um, the ruling party, which, of course, you right. know, has has for decades now been the, the CCCP in China, the, the Chinese mm -hmm. Communist Party. And so it was literally as like, um, and again, this is anecdotal and I don't know where they got this off. Not trying to make too, right. any too broad or sweeping of statements, but it was it was a really interesting look into how a a, di a very different style of both like culture and government might work, where mm. it wasn't like you know it wasn't like oh you must you must uh, always include these tenets of of Maoism or whatever, but it was like right. it was like in revision maybe go back and make sure your paper lines up with the ruling party's idea like right. that was just a step of revision and it was like you might have you might have written something wrong but just go back and fix it just fix it yeah so interesting yeah and another thing i know and this is just i think a random fact i learned in a history class at bethany is that um historically in chinese film there's a thing like in in film produced under the current chinese government there's a whole thing where it's like if your if your film is about Chinese history, the ruler can't lose. Um, oh. So I remember watching just like you know some kung fu movie in in uh, uh, extracurricular time that, it, but it was like you know a twenty first century movie produced in China, and you know it it took place in like the the Middle Ages or what we'd call the Dark Ages from a European perspective. Um, mm -hmm. and this, it was like about an emperor of China who was just a right monster, just like the mm. worst. Uh, and he, he was, you know, and this, this character was like constructed in such a way that like in a, in a Hollywood production, like killing him would be the climax of the film. Like that's just sort of how right. this, the story was structured. And as it got towards the climax, having recently learned about this in, you know, in my history class, I was like, wait, he's not going to die. He's going to win. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I wish I could remember, like, what this movie was uh, or, you know, uh, mm -hmm. anything else about it, really. Um, it was not Hero and it was not Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I know those two things <laughs> were there for sure. But um, anyway, and it did. Like, the climax of the film basically involved, like, sort of everyone around this emperor dying and he, like, is triumphant at the end. And I think if I remember right, it was sort of like a Pyrrhic victory for him where he like, oh. he like technically wins, but it's, it's the yeah. worst at the cost of, yeah. Like yeah. his soul basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. So those are, those are like the two points of reference that I do have for this. And the reason I thought of them is it was, you know, I think if there were sort of contemporary references and especially contemporary criticisms um, mm -hmm. buried in this book, which like I suspect there were, but I don't have again the yeah um, context, context to prove that in any way. Uh, I I do think they would have to be very sideways and very equivocal. Um, mm and be the sort of thing that actually we talked about in Don Quixote, where there there would have to be a very pro-government interpretation of anything yeah. that there was. Um, 
Unless Sishin Liu is just, you know, that, uh, um, trying to find a different word than ballsy and it's just not coming. Uh, <laughs> you know. That's good. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, before we talk about the book itself, let's give our listeners a chance to read it. Yes. Um, so we'll pause here, read the book, and come back. Welcome back. Thank you. If you are back. Oh, it's it's you're talking to them. Are you back? They're back. They're back. Well, are you sure? But yeah. No, um, no, you've you've established that they are, so that means they're. Yeah. Back. So I did observe that. No. Oh, and then they observed me. Oh, yeah. Maybe none of us are back. Yep. Um, oh, shoot. Yeah. Uh, Those rules are hard. Yeah, they are. Um, no, but I think they are bad because I heard them uh, pause the the cassette for too long, and then like their we're, their tape we're back unspooled to this again. Yeah, this I, I had like let it rest for a while, and so I thought I'd, I'd bring it uh, back now. But anyway, they got the uh, pen out and they re they rewound it, and now we're all we're all good again. Are we? Are we though? I'm good. I don't know about you. Right. I mean, I was both so, good and not good until you looked at me, and then I was definitely good because you're bad. So, got it. That's science. That's that's the science. <laughs> that's the science that we've learned from Cixin Liu. Um, yes. Okay. So, uh, first, I, I want to say first that um, I, so I, I picked this book because I wanted something that was just sci-fi. I wanted uh, a, a good, solid sci-fi thing, and this. Sure. I think does, um, you know, it being from uh, 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 an Eastern country does fit into the the concept in the West of that classic sci-fi. Absolutely. In fact, possibly better than like a lot of what gets marketed as sci-fi these days does. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's it, it was something where I, I, I wasn't sure whether it was going to be that sort of classic sci-fi or the more modern quote unquote sci-fi. Um, but, uh, no, it's definitely, uh, in, in line with that classic idea, which is, um, if I want to put a, a definition to it, it's just taking a scientific concept and bringing it to an extreme in a fictional story. <laughs> yeah. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like you're, you're sort of defining what is now often referred to as hard science fiction sure um, which is like a you know specification that has come up to differentiate it from uh i guess it sometimes gets called softer science fiction hard science fiction is usually distinguished as like this could happen or this mm -hmm. is like a single or a very small extrapolation from current knowledge to whatever the world of the book is based on um yeah and that's as opposed to like softer science fiction, which is, uh, um, and no offense to you or anyone listening, but like Star Trek, where mm -hmm. there's no explanation for why the Enterprise goes through space, let alone any of the technology that like makes it happen. Um, there are a lot of very sciencey sounding words thrown around when like crises happen, but like they don't have, they have minimal reference to anything in the, in the real world, like in the, mm -hmm. in our current body of scientific knowledge. Um, and I'll say even within the, the realm of Star Trek, as you go through the series, it becomes softer and softer and softer. Oh, sure. Um, so, uh, and I mean like there, there are episodes where it, it, 
gets more towards the hard science fiction stuff, but yeah. in general, it just grows softer. Well, if you, <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, uh, you know, you could have harder concepts. I wish mm-hmm. I hadn't. Anyway, um, you, you, you know, you can have, have more hard science fiction concepts break in. So if you have like a very contemporary understanding of quantum physics or something like you can use that to explain mm-hmm. something, but viewed holistically, if you take Star Trek and then set it up against, for example, the Martian, um, is mm-hmm. actually a really good recent example, uh, in American science fiction of what is often called hard science fiction, where like all of, as I understand it, all of the technology in the Martian is like conceivable with current knowledge understanding and like production like what you know what is uh most of like the the fantasy there is like the funding and the willpower to actually get a mission to mars going Mm. um as far as like knowing how to do it we're like almost to martian territory again as i understand i i am Mm -hmm. the first to admit i'm very shaky on like besides (laughs) besides the history of china contemporary china all of science is a third area that I'm like weak in. <laughs> so, so this this is going to be a, a great uh, great book to discuss here. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so the the concept of the book in general, um, ball lightning is is what it's what it's about. Which the the mystery of ball lightning as as expressed in the book is, as I understand it, quite accurate Hmm. that like no one really knows what ball lightning is or or how it behaves and and such um and if it's replicated it it's not replicated another time (laughs) right uh which is all things that happen in in the book um i i've heard that there there's a new theory out there i can't explain it but um Uh, it's not this one, the 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 one that he comes up with for as the explanation in this book. Right. Um, as uh, which I mean the the listeners already read it, so we're not spoiling anything by saying it's macro electrons. Okay. Um, which that's just an interesting idea. Right. Um, that comes up. It's got a the the chapter is titled after it. it's page two o four. Um is the the chapter entitled macro electrons where right <clears throat> this is this it's right about the center of the book and it's really kind of the turning point in the book right um you've got it before this this part and after this part are kind of two different stories um leading up to this point it's all about what is ball lightning and after this point, it's about what do we do or not do with ball lightning, right. <laughs> and how are we destroying the the enemy or ourselves or the planet uh, right. with ball lightning? Um, <laughs> yeah. So up to this point, um, the the narrator. Do we ever learn his name? I was trying to remember for sure. Oh, uh, I mean, I'm bad at character names when they like you know dickensian style like telegraph them yeah. and repeat them a million times so i am a very bad person to answer this question that's that's fine i feel like it it was out there somewhere but i don't remember i feel like it was sure what it was i feel like oh the... no 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 never i'm thinking of something different okay um i was gonna say i was feel like the main female character 
Lin Yun, I feel like she says it at some point. Probably she does. Um, but yeah, so we've got um, Lin Yun, who's this um, weapons researcher for the military. Right. Um, and she's with the narrator, and they've they've gone to find this other scientist named uh, Ding Yi. Um, and he's he when you meet him initially, he he's at least for for Western standards, kind of this stereotypical um, pseudo misanthrope. Yes. Geek, you know, yeah. who, who's living alone, and uh, his his house doesn't meet up with any societal norms. And, uh, but he's a genius and like, um, all these things and, and all it takes is to, to turn him onto the case, uh, and they, they share some of their research with him and then he's got the answer. Um, and he figures it out pretty, pretty quickly, which is an interesting thing that I don't think would work in a Western novel. Um, I want to talk about the macro electrons in, in a second here, uh, but that just that fact that you've got this main character who's been hunting for this and trying to find it in the West, he would figure it out. Somebody else might help help him, but he would figure it out. Um, but instead, now he turns it over to this guy, and Ding Yi figures it out. And yeah. at that point, I feel like the narrator himself kind of fades into the background. He's an observer for the rest of the novel. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm just trying to decide what I think about the idea that that this would be written differently in the West. Certainly, like if you're, I, I don't really want to go down that rabbit hole too much. Right. But like, uh, like if you're if you're especially the more someone is like trying to hew to like the the hero's journey. Um, yeah. You know that that kind of like archetype that is like every especially how to write a screenplay but even how to write a novel yeah book like basically tells you to sort of follow that like three act five plot point you know hero's journey uh mm-hmm. structure which has been you know used to oh yeah create some wonderful stories in its day but um yeah certainly if you were if you were trying to hew to that like you would mm-hmm. never this would be a huge violation of that you would never have the main character mm-hmm. just like become an observer in his own book um it's also out of convention in that like you you certainly do have observer narrators but it's like usually they are all all that and essentially you know in just i guess western fiction in general if you have an observer narrator um they become like often borderline like a third person narrator and like Mm -hmm. every once in a while they use a personal pronoun to remind you of of who they are um right and this this is very much not that in the sense that like no. this main character is is you know actually taking most of the action through the first half of the book and he's uh um you know like even in the second half you never forget that like you're looking through his eyes that like this is still a oh, journey yes. that he's on even if he has mm-hmm. less agency in the events that he's recounting um mm-hmm. and my instinct is to say that like this is not unheard of specifically in science fiction. Like, um, I actually found the afterword to this book really interesting. Yeah. Um, especially as far as exactly what we're what we're talking about. Uh, I mean, it was interesting on a lot of levels, but um, mm-hmm. on three eighty two is a 
uh, in our edition. I think we have the same edition, but yep. uh, he talks about, um, he has sort of like given a, a summary of the interaction between Chinese science fiction and, you know, like mm -hmm. what was originally English language science fiction and saying that there was a long period where uh, the twain did not meet, like they were, they were sort of cut off from each other. Um, and China, China had like a body of science fiction, uh, but it, it, you know, it, it, in the way that, you know, things with a common ancestor when, when they're cut off will sort of morph that it had, it had gone away from, or had gone in a different direction as Western science fiction. Uh, mm -hmm. So he says Chinese science fiction during that closed off period was dominated by by the invention story, a form that was preoccupied with the description of a future futuristic technological device and speculation on its immediate positive effects, uh, but which barely touched the invention's deeper social implications, uh, much less the tremendous ways such technology would transform society. And he, he's also been basically saying that ball lightning is like to a larger degree than any of his other work sort of in that vein um mm -hmm. which is all very interesting to me because to me ball lightning very much read like a a hardcore like western sort of hard science fiction if anything mm -hmm. like brought into the quantum physics era where it's much less about like physical like the the i don't know it's it's like if if hg wells had known about quantum physics or had had oh sure you know it it really read like that to me yeah. and even the form um to go back to that like read that way to me as well maybe like you point now that you point out that like shift right at, at almost the halfway mark it maybe almost like two slightly different hg wells stories like one with mm. the the hero narrator and one with the observer narrator, but um, to me the inter the the thing about this book that's in common with both H.G. Wells and like the the more you know traditional science fiction uh, format as it has come down to us, um, the the thing that's in common is that the technology or the idea of the technology that's the main character. Um, mm -hmm like yes and and that's you know i i want to be careful and say like there's there's excellent like human character development in this book and and storylines mm -hmm. and some of the plot certainly runs along those lines and, and you certainly certainly feel things about the characters but it's like if, if that's all you were looking for you would not read this novel um yeah you, you read this novel you keep reading it and it sort of rises or falls based on your interest in that central idea, that ball lightning mm -hmm. idea, um, and the right. the extrapolation from that, which you know is is like really what, especially originally, like what makes science fiction what it is. Um, right. You 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 know, you, I think I think some of the like snobbery and the um, derision of science fiction that we've seen over the last hundred years it usually centers around people's concept of what fiction is or what it could be and mm -hmm. your sort of derision of it will be in direct proportion to whether you need a human to be the main character um, <laughs> yes and you know yes. if you if, um, if you don't need that and you're good with a story that where the idea can be the main character then like 
a whole other set of literature opens up to you with its own, you know, complexities and and uh, mm-hmm. peaks and valleys and so forth. Uh, Orson Scott Card wrote something. Um, I think he was writing about fantasy at the time, but it applies similarly to science fiction um, that there there are a number of different structures to a fantasy story and one of those structures that this is making me think of is just the exploration structure right which your purpose is not to show this this human story or anything or or these these characters and and um you know the hero's journey even isn't necessarily part of it it's just about here's a world i want you to see right (laughs) and i want you to see all the concepts in this this world that i've put together and science fiction and this kind of science fiction is along the same lines it's an exploration of a concept yeah um i think uh go ahead yeah well it turns into kind of just a thought experiment the the whole novel is is more or less a thought experiment yeah Yeah. and i think to me and this is a lot of this is personal preference but to me that exploration structure works better in a science fiction story than in a fantasy story Mm -hmm. um i agree (laughs) (laughs) because i mean there's this whole uh there's especially in our i would say people exactly our age though certainly not exclusively there's this like fetishization of the concept of world building um and world building is like something that Liu really is not doing in this novel at all so i should probably not talk about it very much but um mm. that's what you're doing with an exploration structure in a in a fantasy story right you're you're just mm-hmm. sort of showing off the the world building that you've done yep. <sighs> which is fine but frankly if, if that's, it's done well it's fine if it's done well it can be fine but frankly even if it's done well it's like the least interesting fantasy mm-hmm. structure to me um and a lot of that has to do with just the fact that it like it's just like a tissue like it, it has no relevance mm-hmm. to anything else so you have to in order for me to really be interested and not put your a uh, 900 page book down on, on about page 50 brandon sanderson you have to like <laughs> be clever or be like witty or be doing something else to mm. propel that story along like if you have you know if you have workman like writing and you have really good characters or something uh mm-hmm. i can i can sit with you all day but if you have just like bland workman like writing and all you're doing is world building i get so bored so quickly um yes but in a science fiction story if you have you know if your writing isn't that good but like you're exploring a concept that does have relevance to science or to to society or you know some actual Mm -hmm. idea that like comes back into the real world that you're speculating on like if if the idea if that main character that idea is good enough like i can forgive a lot of other flaws uh and still be interested in the in the exploration i think it it goes in in both of these science fiction and fantasy with the exploration concept type story what you wind up having at the end is you've given a playground to the reader Mm -hmm. for them to uh, whether they write a fan fiction or just you know think about it play in yeah. um and uh in that 
that fantasy world. It's like, okay, here's here's a world that you can set your next D and D campaign in, you know. Right. Um, <laughs> or uh, in in the science fiction one, it's it's more of the the thought process sort of thing, just like conceptualizing all of these ideas. And even if the the core concept itself, which like is ball lightning, just macro electrons, right? Probably not. But <laughs> does that open up uh, a, a, a the the conceptualizing and and theorizing and and thinking about other ideas absolutely right. yeah uh, adjacent things um you know uh and and that's i think maybe one of the great powers of it but even in that if if the the author himself plays in the playground that he's built that's when you get a real good story right and i think that Zixin Liu is playing around in this concept in a really intriguing way. And I want to hit this before we get to our second episode, because this is something that is, is, um, I, I don't, I don't want to say it's, it's a theory, but it, it's something that, that, that is a, a hinge for my reading of this book. Okay. Um, that, uh, so it, back there at 204, 205, at the bottom of page 205 is where Ding Yi, um, says, next, I will tell you what ball lightning is. And then on the next page, um, as he's, you know, uh, enjoying everyone's silent waiting on the edge of their seats, he says, it's nothing more than an electron, you know, and he's very, uh, proud of himself in that way. Um, anyway, so he explains then the whole science of it. I'm not going to go into all of that, but it's really fascinating the way Tishin Liu has written all of this, that there's a, this macro world and macro universe. We're getting very Ant-Man, uh, very quick, uh, here as we're, it also, uh, uh, as it, it also made yeah. me think of HG Wells, um, mm. Which again is one of those connections to like, like, I feel like this book is more connected to Western science fiction than uh, Liu maybe thinks it is, or not connected, but mm. like more more uh, resonant with it than than maybe mm. he thinks it is. Um, sure. Because I I one of the first science fiction stories I ever read, it was it was in the book in the Country of the Blind and other stories. It was mm-hmm. one of the other stories, but it was just this this Wells, you know, five page story about uh, some universe, and then it turns out the universe is like in a puddle, like or it's like a drop in a puddle, mm. and then the puddle is in a universe, but then that universe is like the the, the shimmer in someone's cereal spoon, or you know, um, huh. I'm obviously paraphrasing wildly here, but like, so it's Men in Black. Yeah, 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 yeah. The universe in a, in a gem, you know. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, but this is this is almost like this suggests that kind of like perspective mm-hmm. or 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 like leveling of of like realities of different magnitudes. Um, right. That feels Which, very like... contemporary, but it also like has reference to mm-hmm. this you know thing published 130 years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it, you know, kind of builds on, on the science there here. This one gets into quantum physics a whole lot, which we've, we've touched on a little bit here and there, but, um, it's, it's interesting because I, I don't know really anything about quantum physics besides what I've seen in the movies. Right. Um, but, (laughs) um, but it, it takes this concept that these electrons and the way they behave intrinsically are going to connect you to the, to take ant-man the quantum realm right right um and and so that 
that sparks this change here. Okay, so here's here's what's really interesting to me. The narrator is motivated, as we see in the in the prologue, or is it the prelude? What's it? Prelude. Um, prelude. That uh, his his parents were killed on his birthday. Yes. Um, and they were killed by ball lightning, and that started his obsession with ball lightning, which right there. It, the the obsession story sounds really interesting, but then that obsession is it, it it becomes baseless. It's it's not about finding justice for his parents or finding some way to cope with that loss. It's just about that was amazing, and I want right. to find out more. <laughs> right, right? Uh, and then that's that's the only thing that tethers him to the ball lightning uh, after two hundred pages. Right, um, once it gets to this turning point. He doesn't really have any any need to, to stick around anymore because he's figured it out, but he's still obsessed with ball lightning. He's connected to it. He is entangled with the ball lightning <laughs> um, in in that, that, that way. And um, it goes on from there. Um, hold on. I got to remember the thought that I had um, because, um, okay, so. He he goes on and continues to study it, and it's not about his his parents any longer. Except that, um, what he finds out because of this, the the way the uh, these macro electrons behave is anything they destroy or anyone they kill isn't really dead or gone. They're you know in this quantum state of both. You know they're they're Schrodinger's cat. Right. Um, and so that kind of gives him a hint of like hope that he'll see his parents again and it's there and it comes up once in a while, but it just as quickly fades. Right. And it's, it's not a, a, as central an issue for him. It's all about the science, which the book is all about that, that science, that this, this concept of, of the ball lightning. And he continues following along um, as the research goes on. He does make a decision to, to leave the project at a certain point and, um, uh, and then uh, winds up coming back again uh, towards the end of it all. Um, not not to the project, but like he he's brought back into the the story. Right. Um, after he has ceased observing it, then someone else comes and gives him the observations. Um, so that that he's an observer, I think, is absolutely intentional, just with the concept of this quantum reality and the idea of observation makes a thing what it is um and he observing all of this is making it what it is and then as soon as he leaves um that's the the ball lightning then goes wild (laughs) (laughs) and um i mean the people involved uh lin yun uh lin yun is is the one who who essentially destroys the world with it not exactly destroys the world but but certainly um, destroys herself which i think is related to everything that you're saying here Yes, uh, and um, that's that, that, that climax. Uh, and the way that climax is related is in a really interesting way. And I'm trying to find the, the, the page number for sure here where, where that, that happens, where she obliterates herself in this, um, you know, the macronuclei they've found. They, they create this nuclear fusion, um, which destroys her and everyone right in that vicinity but then is specifically targeted targeted towards um microchips right um 
and destroys microchips in in an area but then it expands beyond and you know um changes the world essentially anyway um uh so she's destroyed there but then she sticks around and she she talks to her father uh there even after being destroyed before she fully fades away um which hasn't happened before and kind of breaks the rules and they point that out why did she stick around and i don't remember the explanation but it's kind of a meh i don't know right <laughs> uh explanation uh and w- which coming from this this ding yi character who's had all the answers and he's like well, i don't know um is itself really interesting i know i'm paraphrasing all that right, but right. um anyway what uh what strikes me about why she would stick around so long is because the central observer was not observing her the narrator was not observing her um at that time so she could stick around it's making it meta but that's where i'm going with all of this because um essentially the reader of this novel is in a macro universe to this novel oh (laughs) Uh. (laughs) i'm so mad at you and i don't know i do know why I, I know you know why. And I see, okay, I'd be mad at myself too, but I don't think it's completely unwarranted. Sure. I, I think I think it's intentional that that it's it's that that's at least a layer of all of this. Sure. I mean um, I think I I almost feel like I would have to go back and reread the whole shoot and match mm. uh to know exactly what I think of this theory. Um Sure. Just because I, I so purely did not even think about it at all. However, I think an author of the like clear intelligence and subtlety of Xixin Liu that he just mm-hmm. demonstrates th- throughout this novel, I think he probably has to have thought of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, you know, there's always a dangerous argument when you're like, well, this author is smart, so they they thought of the theory that I thought, you know. Uh, but but I, then you bring in Doctor Hannah's point that if if it's if it makes if it's what it, what does he say if it's smart and it's there it's you give them credit. Yeah, the author gets credit for it whether they <laughs> the mention it or not. The author gets the credit for it. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. you know. So there's that, but like, yeah, uh, I I don't know. I I have to suspect that if you're someone writing this exact novel that you've at least thought about that idea um Mm -hmm. and and to say it's not central it's not the point uh, of the novel but and also to say that you think of it isn't the same as to say that you actually did it intentionally like no author can account for every theory that oh you know uh uh someone on literally the other side of the world from them uh Mm -hmm. you know 17 years after they write is going to come up with but Mm -hmm. uh just because of that i won't dismiss it sort of out of hand sure sure um that's that's kind of like one of the the big things i wanted to mention in this before i let the podcast go too far (laughs) um but um i mean it's it's tied into the the concept of this narrator and he's uh on page 353 he's talking about his obsession or no this is this is her um this is uh lin yun talking about her obsession 
sure. um, which which is kind of a, an undercurrent in the book from the get-go, this idea of obsession. And she uh, says here, later, I slowly got used to life without mom, and the naive hatred in my heart faded with time. I never stopped the fascinating thought exercises, though, and I grew up with all kinds of fantasy weapons. So, like, her obsession is weapons. Right. Um, and she's invented different kinds of weapons and stuff. And so that's why she's on this project with Ball Lightning, trying to weaponize it, have a, a unique fantasy weapon for herself. Right. But what, what comes up there is this obsession is an obsession without feeling. Um, the, the hatred is gone. She doesn't have that, that hatred of the, the people who killed her mom. Instead, it's just left with the obsession. Right. Um, the narrator has the same thing. He, he doesn't feel anything about ball lightning. He's just obsessed with it. Right. Um, which I don't know. I don't know what the Chinese word for obsession is um, or what they are, you know, what, what words there are for it. Um, right. But I, I, I wonder if there's a nuance there that is, is lost in translation. Um, yeah. But uh, it's it's just intriguing that uh, this this le- leaving a lot of those feelings out um, makes the narrator himself a bit more of a blank slate right. um, for the reader to fit into. Um, as we're reading th- and seeing all of this through his eyes that we are observing from his perspective, uh, all of these things. Um, I forget exactly where I was going with all that, but um, it's it's just interesting. Sure, the layers of observation I think is is the the overall thought I had. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to mention, uh, just because it fits with some of the things we were talking about earlier in this episode, um, is is the fact that, like, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of talked about how, like, the the idea is the main character, and um, mm-hmm. I hold that to be true. I think there's evidence within this book that if, like, if Liu wanted to, he could write very movingly, like, a, a human drama, like, even a contemporary drama, you know? Yes. Um, and I think that the prologue... The prologue does a lot of heavy lifting. Like, if we were doing, you know, oh, yeah. a, a Alzebo Soup style read where we went two or three chapters at a time, I think we would do one entire episode on the prologue because there's a lot going on there just from a a craft perspective and a storytelling perspective. Um, mm-hmm. And but one of the things it does is it like introduces us to this character and gets us in his head, uh, and introduces his obsession with ball lightning which becomes the obsession of the book. So it's almost as if like Liu has, has a managed to sort of do, do a both and between the character as, as character and the, uh, the idea as character to say that like, because you're inside the head of this character, of course this book is about ball lightning because that's, you know, Mm -hmm. what he's about. And there's probably, I don't know how like, interesting or fruitful it would be but there's probably a reading of this book where uh you know ball lightning is just a just a symbol for this character's obsession with his parents death or his working out of the trauma of that death 
Um, right. Like, just because he says he's over it doesn't mean he's over it. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, like, often, you know, trauma is worked out in ways that the people working it out, you know, even straight up deny or at least are are sort of sideways or tangential. Um, and I think that's in there. I don't... I. I think it would be sort of a cheap and dirty move to try to like turn this into a character study based on that observation. But um, mm-hmm. I think that idea is, is uh, definitely on the page. I don't think it's too much of a stretch. Not at all. No, no. no. Um, that'd be an interesting one to investigate further. I think. Yeah. Well, we're we're about here at the end of our our first hour discussion of Ball Lightning. Any other concluding thoughts here, Ethan? Before we that was the only one I wanted to make sure to get off my chest in okay. this episode. All right, very good. Then we'll uh, we'll finish up our discussion of Ball Lightning in the next episode of Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. And uh, so keep uh, reading along with us on that. Let us know what you think uh, the book is all about, or if you think the book is about us and we're in the book. And <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, all that. Go uh, contact us uh, on tapsterradio.org uh, in the uh, contact button uh, up on the top. Uh, or on Twitter, you can find us at Room with Scotch. Or on Facebook, you can find us in the Tapestry Radio Tap House. It's a closed group, but if you request to join, we will let you in unless you don't exist or you do exist. Um, <laughs> or you're both. Anyway. Um, <laughs> in some of those states, uh, we will let you in. In some of those states, sometimes. Yes. It will, it will, it will be there. Um, yes, and as always, we do homework. Uh, so if you submit homework to us, we will do it for you. We don't promise to do it well, but we condone plagiarism. That is the firm stance of this podcast. We condone plagiarism because it's funny and we want to see you go to plagiarism jail uh, and we will laugh at you. Um, but no, it, sincerely, if you go to our website, tapestradio.org slash scotchcast and fill out the form for homework submission, we will do that homework. Uh, and... Uh, hopefully make it fun uh, yeah if you like this podcast uh check out the other shows on the tapestry radio network uh intermission the backstage drama podcast us play fiasco the improv actual play fiasco podcast uh freddy goes to a podcast the freddy the pig book series discussion podcast and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United actual play podcast. Uh, rate and review us and all these shows, all the shows you listen to, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, that helps other people find us and lets us know what you think of the show as well. Uh, Ethan, where can the gentle listener find you? I am at Bjartlett on Twitter. That's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Uh, I also have a webcomic called Pinporter Girl Detective. That's pinporterdetective.com. It is a film noir fairy tale uh, detective comic starring a 12-year-old girl detective who I would be afraid of if I met her <laughs> because like, she would just see right through all of my nonsense. Uh, so if that sounds appealing, uh, check that out. That's the sort of thing you're into. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm on Twitter at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. You can follow me there. 
Uh, and with that, until next time, it's our party, and we'll cry if we do and don't want to. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.